Matthew twenty-five, fourteen through 30. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities, and then he left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earned five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. my, my, My iPad is drifting. I need to obtain stabilizing. Sorry. Two bags. The servant with the two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags of silver to invest, and I've earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I've earned two more. The master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with with the one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid that I would lose your money, so I hid it in the ground. Look, here's your money back. But the master replied, You wicked and lazy servant, if you knew that I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate... Why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. And then he ordered, Take the money from this servant and give it to the one with ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant out into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Zechariah's words to his infant son, John the Baptist. And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us 
to the path of peace. This is also the word of the Lord. You might be wondering why would I pair these two seemingly unrelated scriptures, the parable of the talents and the um, Zacharias song, or at least just a little chunk of it. And it's because I'm trying to enter into this season of Advent. Advent is, um, this is of course the first day. Is it the first day? Yesterday is the first day? Or is today? This is the first Sunday of Advent. We can be sure of that. Today is the first uh, Sunday of Advent, Advent, and Advent is a season of preparation. It's not a season of fulfillment, but preparation. Lent is a season of preparation for Easter, and Advent is a season of preparation for Christmas. Easter coincides with the coming of spring after the long dormant season of, well, winter, but of death and loss and darkness. And Christmas comes not as the fullness, Easter is that fullness, but Christmas comes as kind of the, the first rays of dawn, beginning, as, as the sun of hope is, is beginning, just beginning to rise, piercing that darkness. But what I want to kind of acknowledge, what I've been sort of making myself admit, is this land, Zechariah said, that Jesus comes to is to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And we know that Jesus will come again. And so even though we know he's come, the first Christmas is past, but every year we are celebrating it. But what we're doing in Advent is realizing that we too, we too, are waiting for Messiah. We too are holding on to hope in the midst of what seems to be the opposite of the hope. We too are to be faithful like these servants whose master went away. We too are stewarding hope in the midst of the Shadowlands. I've been working on a song called Shadowlands, trying anyway, and sometimes I realize my workflow needs improvement because... I will sing out these lyrics and these melodies and my heart's in it and then it's gone because I didn't hit record. <laughs> and so it's like two steps forward, three steps back. What was that? What was that part about the Shadowlands? What was that part where I'm, I'm crying, oh come, oh come, and what is this? What was this thing about the, this child, his name is Hope? Oh, incidentally, um, I can tell you this much. We're not, this is not the full reveal of, of, the, of the new baby's name. But one time I came out of a, a time of singing and I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying to me, her name is Hope. And I find it so interesting that we're waiting for so-and-so, Hope, to arrive uh, at this season of... And, and some contraction started last night. So yeah, anyway. Yeah, we got that going on. Oh yeah, make sure you pray, somebody prays for Carrie before we get out of here because the baby's got a little bit enlarged valve in the heart and the doctors are kind of being cautious and careful. and It's a whole thing. Anyway. Back on point. I find it really interesting that for so many of us, this season, this holiday season, which you would think is just this beautiful time of like, I don't know, Christmas lights and Christmas cookies and being with friends and family and, I don't know, eating too much pastries with sugary things and gaining some weight and having a great time. It's supposed to be all fun, but for so many of us, 
The holiday season is a season of contrasts. And um, this is part of why I think liturgy has a lot of wisdom in it, of not just saying, yay, baby Jesus, but also saying, um, what about the intentional entering into the admission that things are not right with us and things are not right with the world? I find that really healthy and helpful. I also find it interesting that so many of us associate the holiday season with these contrasts of the joy of family and God drawing near and making himself vulnerable and knowable and close. But we also associate it with this financial pressures of paying for the season and travel and family obligations and winter doldrums and the lack of sunlight and all the triggered emotions of loved ones lost. We remember them more intensely. If you're grieving, the holiday season is even worse. So many of us are aware of this, this contrast held together in this time. And I think Advent and Christmas really do helpfully frame this for us as the faith journey it really is. Uh, they, I think they helpfully position us to walk through, the bo- through both the waiting, the longing, the darkness, the cold, the promise the hope, the light, the warmth of God on his way to make his home with us and never leave. I referenced John the Baptist, uh, Zachariah's words over him, and we know this. John the Baptist had a ministry of preparation, right? His job was to show up before Jesus comes and prepare the lot, if you use a, let's use a construction metaphor, he was to clear the trees and, and dig the hole for the foundation, but he didn't lay the foundation. Um, he was a, it was a ministry of clearing things away, not the ministry of actually building the house, and certainly not the ministry of moving in. If you could use Pentecost as the picture of moving in, and Christ in his ministry is that, building the house. But I, I really like that Advent is kind of a John the Baptist season. It's a season of preparing us. And I relate to it so strongly. As many of you know, I have sort of a seasonal affective disorder where the lack of sunlight makes this the hardest time of the year for me. Uh, I I would not say, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to say that I have, um, when we talk about depression, there's someone who has a depressed mood, and then there's someone who has the debilitating clinical uh, real thing called depression, right? Someone with a depressed mood, you can encourage them. They can take steps, diet, exercise, prayer, all sorts of things, and it'll break them out of that mood, right? You can exercise the will on the path of obedience, means of grace, take good care of yourself. You know, you get your five things on, on my list. Diet, exercise, sleep, sex, all that good stuff you know, that you're supposed to do. Yeah, I'm, I throw that in there, but let's, we have to talk about it. If you're doing all the things on my list and you're in a depressed mood, something's going on. But if you have deep clinical depression, trying to encourage someone in that place is like telling someone with broken legs to run a couple miles and they'll feel better. It's not the same thing. So I am not coming from a place of saying I'm in clinical depression, but what happens to me is seasonal things happen that are very difficult that I have to walk through. And I'm finding it helps me relate to many of you. Um, I love Advent. We're yearning for Messiah to come. And Zechariah says that Jesus comes as the dawn breaking from heaven that's giving light to those of us who sit in darkness in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. 
so vivid of that imagery of living. There's like the colors are gone. Don't you notice this? Ah, come on, Delaware, do better. You know, the, the clouds stay and the leaves are falling off the trees because the crazy cold wind has torn them off violently. And like the birds are like, I don't know about all that, you know, except for the dumb seagulls, which never seem to leave. Um, what are they even doing half the time? Hanging out at Walmart looking for french fries or something. That's off topic. Let's get back on point. But it's the season of, for, for many of us, it's almost like we can spiritually go into hibernation. Like, did we come evolve from bears? I don't understand. Like, it's, it's almost like we can go into spiritual hibernation. Withdrawing from things that are risky. Withdrawing from, it's, okay, to use the stewards metaphor. This, Jesus has given a piece of his glorious love to each one of these, of, of us. We have a piece of his glorious love that we're called a steward. And it's supposed to be this joyful thing. But once, once, you, once you know you're no longer just this victim of life, but you're a son with authority or a daughter that has this, this I can bring the kingdom? You mean in the midst of this darkness, I have light? I can light the darkness? I'm telling you right now, for some of us, when, the, when our eyes open, we realize we have responsibility and we, because we have ability, it's like, mm, that's too much pressure. How about we retreat? Do you understand? The servant who none of us want to be in the parable, he wasn't intimidated by the brokenness of life. He was intimidated by the blessing he was given. He was intimidated by the responsibility to steward it well and increase it was the eyes being opened that caused him to retreat. Not just, you know, is that making any sense to anyone? Well, Tammy knows. Okay. I'll preach to Tammy. Okay. So this is this season of, for me, this is my own little personal journey every year. In the midst of this season, not letting my seasonal affective disorder steal me from the kingdom. Now, I don't know what your fight is. But my guess is that my little window every season, every Advent Christmas season, applies to all of life, and we all have different fights we're going through in the midst of this shadow land, stewarding this hope we have in Jesus while we wait for its fullness. It's the season of the shadows and the gray. It's the season of trying to remember, wait, wait, no, wait, what is my hope? What is your hope? It's the season of fighting to stay awake while I'm alive and not retreat to distraction, which is, of course, hibernation. Some of us are very skilled at fooling ourselves uh, with busyness into thinking we're awake. (laughs) I'm busy, I'm productive, therefore I'm awake. Are you, though? Are you busy doing what... Jesus has called you to with a heart wide open to him and others. That's stewarding hope. Or are you retreating from that heart wide awake, wide open to him and others because the gift is intimidating? The responsibility feels too much pressure, not because of the gift, but because of the issues we bring to the gift. 
Some of us are very skilled at fooling ourselves with activities that seem productive, but what we're really doing is using activity to retreat from faith, real faith. Because when we tried to live full-hearted in the past, it opened us to love more, which of course opens you to hurt more, which can really create mechanisms of self-protection. So now we're going to be more careful. Now we diversify our investments. Right? But we still, you know, we still love Jesus. We still are we still believe this hope, but we no longer seek first the kingdom. We seek the kingdom a little too. You hear me? Because last time it hurt too bad, so seeking first the kingdom, that's a strategy to get hurt. So let's I heard Tony Campolo joke. He's like, all together on the chorus. Oh, wait, hold on. He was preaching and he says, one-tenth to Jesus I surrender. One-tenth to him I free. All together on the chorus. I surrender one-tenth. Oh, you guys didn't even sing it. (laughs) Now, that's just funny, Okay. (laughs) In this time, I'm rehearsing. I'm trying to rehearse the waiting. We're called during this season to rehearse the waiting. Why? Why rehearse? Is it because we, you know, don't, we're not in really in this story, but we're trying to remember a story so that it could be a little bit more meaningful to us because it's so distant from us. We're not back there waiting on Jesus, so we have to remember what it's like, so maybe we can appreciate it more. No, we're rehearsing the story we're actually in. We rehearse it so that we remember this is our reality. We are waiting on Jesus. He will come again. His kingdom will come in fullness. It has been established. We have been made his people. But we are living in the in-between. Of course, we know, okay, well, some of us know, that we can access the fullness of the kingdom now. But we're having funerals, and I'm talking to you about persevering in the middle of the trial right now and living with faith, so obviously we're not in heaven. (laughs) Okay. That goes without saying, right? But we're rehearsing not so that a story we're not in can be meaningful to us. We're rehearsing because this is our story. This is our our reality. We're waiting with hope. And also, so much of the time, we're fighting to keep hope in view and to keep the faith and to steward our lives while the Master is, at least in some sense, away. And so that's, all of that was introduction. Sorry, that was introduction. Half the sermon spent in introduction. The second half is the real sermon. Stewarding our little hearts in the middle of the waiting. Stewarding our little hope in the middle of the darkness while we wait for that little hope to grow so big that no one will ever wonder if it's true. So this guy that no one wants to be in the story, he was unfaithful, reacted to the newfound responsibilities of the gift. What if I fail? The gift, sometimes awareness, our our, our eyes being opened, triggers a cortisol response. Most of us just call it stress. And I don't remember the percentages, and I'm not even sure how... People would quantify this with clinical studies, but it is true that our brains are less capable of problem solving when we are stressed out. 
we become less creative. We become less clear in our thinking. We become more easily confused when our stress response is triggered. I don't know why I'm holding my hands like this. Neither do you. And so something about breaking the stress is, is almost essential if we're going to try to solve the problem of living faithfully in the present moment. Anything that's contributing more stress to us is not helping us uh, be vibrant uh, children of of God in the middle of a, a dark world. I think the way some people think about standing before Jesus and giving an account will trigger a stress response. Some, some people heard the story I read and said, oh my word, Jesus is terrifying. I better get my crap in order. We got to get busy, like the bumper sticker that I love so much. You know, Jesus is coming soon, look busy. Um, yeah, Caroline, Carol, Caroline Biggs understands that that's funny and not actually meant to be scary. The, the other two, instead of being overwhelmed by the responsibility, the other two stewarded not just their actions, but they stewarded, before you can steward your actions, you have to steward your faith that something's possible. I mean, we've talked about this in the past of Roger Bannister breaking the four-minute mile. And before Roger Bannister, not only did the, did the athletes not believe it was humanly possible, but they believed certain things. Like this, there were real theories out there that if a human were to run faster than four minutes in a mile, their heart would burst and you would die. Like that's one way to keep people from wanting to do it, I would think. Uh, come on, be the fastest you've ever been, but don't, don't. You might die if you do too fast out there. And then as soon as Roger Bannister breaks the four-minute mile, not everyone, obviously, but many of the top runners begin to break this, this limit. Because, and why? Because did they, did they reverse engineer his training process? They know. Did they change anything about their training process? No. What changed? They all of a sudden believed it was possible. Amen. And belief that it's possible makes all, the, all of a sudden, now the sacrifice, the work, the effort... The, the vision of you crossing, the, this is what he said he did. They said, how did you do it? He said, I just constantly pictured myself crossing the finish line and then turning up and, and turning and looking at the clock and it says 359. He, he saw it here before he saw it here. And if, if your vision, if your vision when Jesus entrusts himself to you is I'm going to fail, that will inspire a certain action. If your vision, if what, if what dominates your heart is, is all that could go wrong, that will dominate your actions eventually. So these other two, before they stewarded the gift, they had to steward their understanding of what, like it landed on them with a hopeful picture. I could take this and I could increase it. I could take this and I could double it. I could take this, I could invest it. I could take this. And, and they could, if you could believe that, it will help and you go, oh, this sounds like, like just positive thinking. Well, I'm not sure that the gospel is all that compatible with negative thinking. I, I really am confused about how we're allergic to positive thinking if we have the gospel. It should make us the most positive people rooted in truth. Amen. Not just rooted in faith in ourselves, but rooted in truth. But what I'm really saying is these other two, in order to be faithful, they first had to steward hope. What were they looking forward to? They were looking forward to a well done. 
They were looking forward to, to a life of pleasing the master. So I have this question. I've been asking it a long time. Does faith come first or does the action come first? Sometimes I think the faith comes first and it gives birth to the action. And then sometimes I think the actions come first. I remember Brian McLaren said that first disciples did not think themselves into a new way of living. You could probably almost finish the quote for me, even though you haven't heard it. Anyone with a sense of balance and symmetry going to finish that for me? The first disciples did not think themselves into a new way of living. They There's something to be said. I don't know about the interrelationship between belief and action. Sometimes things come here and then they come here. And sometimes things are done here through an act of the will. Till you go, I did it. I did it a little bit. And then you begin to believe. And then you can work even harder because of the little victories that enabled you to see that it's possible. So I don't know. But I do know that our attitude is everything. If you're particularly fragile, if you're particularly weak, if your hope is particularly small, well, first off, let's distinguish between our hope, which is Christ, and our psychological state of hope. Our hope is big, but my grasp on hope might be little. If my grasp on hope is very little, then it's extremely important that I learn to guard the gates. I probably should stop waking up first thing in the morning and checking my phone. Like I should probably not let whatever is going on in the news be the very first thing I read. It's probably not that damaging for me to you know, figure out how the Cavaliers are doing, how the Warriors are doing, and how the Rockets are. Probably the NBA is not, not going to damage my psychological state too badly. But it might not be the best thing for me to wake up every morning first thing and have the story that the culture thinks is what's happening in our lives be the thing that I root myself in casually without even thinking. Because what's happening in life right now? You know, uh, the other morning I woke up, eyes, eyes open, and the first thing I did was look at my phone and read about, what's his name, Lauer? Um, yeah, and read about his ex-wife who was defending him. And It wasn't like something put me in this deep emotional trauma. But I realized what I was doing was starting my day thinking that this whole thing in our culture is what's happening in my life right now. Instead of realizing the first thing, waking up, thank you, Holy Spirit. You are incredible. God, you're amazing. My life has purpose opening my Bible and saying, equip me for the day, spending time receiving God's love, letting that's what's going on in my life. Not saying that what I was doing was destructive. I'm saying what I was doing was not very carefully designed for my hope to be clear and held before my eyes. Does that make any sense? And I think our daily routines are something special. Again, I'm not speaking to people who are strong right now. I'm speaking to people who have little grasp of the big hope. You know, our daily routines kind of matter. How you, I mean, I've been thinking about, like, what if, how do you reverse engineer your architecture of your home to achieve the lifestyle productivity you want? 
Like it probably, if they say, they say that if you own a guitar and you want to get good at the guitar, the dumbest thing you could do is put it in a case and then push that case under the bed. That, you're not playing guitar, you're not learning guitar, you will never be good at guitar, you're done, you're already done. And if you have to look at a calendar that says, now it's time for me to practice guitar, practice? You believe in practice? Practice is lame, practice is for losers. Passion is winners. If it's your hobby, you're winning. If it's, if it's done because on a schedule, like uh, an hour a week is what probably you're going to get. Now, I'm not saying not discipline, but if that guitar is out of its case, prominently displayed in a way, in, like, especially if it's right where you cannot even have to get up to get it, but if you put it right next to a chair you regularly sit on, every time you come into that room, you sit down and it's right there, guess what's going to happen? You've, arc, you've, already, you've thought, you've reverse engineered your life enough to say, I'm lazy, so let's hack into this. Let's hack my laziness. And everybody, everybody in the world's a creature of habit. If, if you didn't have habits that you could do mindlessly, you'd be wasting all... Why do you think Steve Jobs wore a, blue, a dark blue turtleneck in jeans every day and never changed it? Why, you know, what, Jeff Bezos wears the same shirt every day? Like who, why do these people do this? Why waste mental energy on stuff that doesn't matter? Hack your life. You're going to get up every morning and probably brush your teeth, I hope. In the bathroom, I suspect. If you just hack your life, knowing that we are creatures of habit, and if you design your habits to help you get accidentally into doing what you're created to do, what you're on the planet to do, we might have a shot at this thing. Like, leave Bible. Here's what I'm saying leave Bibles open all over the house. Leave Bibles open by the toilet. <gasps> he said, toilet. Bible and toilet. I used to be so reverent toward the Bible, I wouldn't read it on the toilet. And then Clint Yoder here was like, that's dumb. He's like, Tim, I grew up on the farm. We, Dad had a Bible that the cover was ripped off, and there was cow manure in the pages of it. And we read that Bible, and he read verses to us while we were out doing all the things on the farm. And that, like, that actually got in there and messed with my ideas. I started messing around and had to find a place to go and said, I'm treating the physical book with a lot of reverence, but what's more important? The book having access to my heart throughout the day is more important than the cover not being cow manured or whatever. So leave Bibles open. throughout. If, if reading the Bible matters to you, leave Bibles open in places where you're going to sit down. You know? I've been thinking about, like, what if I... My wife's like, don't do it, Tim. Don't do it. Like, what if I took a whole month and said, I'm not going to be on my phone, you guys. It's a month without the phone. And she's like, don't you dare. I need access to you. Plus, the church needs access to you. And she's like, why you got to be so... Instead of, instead of being like, let's jog a little, you're like, let's run a marathon Tuesday. You know? like, why don't you just... She's like, isn't the internet really what you're reacting to? Isn't the internet? And I'm like... She's like, why don't you just get an old flip phone? And I'm like... Oh, I started being filled with all these weird, you know, sentimental. My generation, like the you know, the early 1990s and 2000s. Let's listen to Smash Mouth and, and talk on our flip phones. Um, and Creed. Um, where, how did we get here? It's not in my notes. But sometimes breaking our routines that have us piddling away, like, you know, you watch YouTube in your off moments, and the next thing you know, that in your off moments, watching a little YouTube here and a little YouTube, nothing wrong, I love YouTube, it's awesome. 
but like just things that we do habitually in little time slots, they don't just take up those little time slots. Those don't just add up. What happens is the treasure principle takes place. Where, you're, where you put your time grows bigger in your heart, and then, it's, and then it actually ends up taking... Then you want more time given to it, and then it, it snowballs. And so sometimes things like take a month off of the internet will help re- hit reset. Not that I want to do it, you guys. It sounds terrifying. Um... <laughs> what will I do with my mind while I'm sitting there? What When I'm laying with the girls, putting them to sleep, what will I do with myself? Pray or something? That sounds horrifying. Um, yeah, and I sometimes think about that. Like, like, you know, my 97-year-old grandma, she didn't lay around watching YouTube in her off moments. She interceded for people and knitted things, I guess. I don't know what she was... Stabbed the devil in the eyes with these big knitting needles. I don't know what she was doing. No idea how this is a sermon at this point. Um, but what if, you, what if we sat back and hacked our life and said, I, I want to live while I'm alive. And even just the simple thing of being consumers instead of creators. Um, it's easier than ever... Because we have the internet in our pocket, maybe I'm, I don't know who I'm talking to. I know I'm talking to me. I'm not sure who else I'm talking to. I'm definitely talking to me. Because we have the internet in our pocket, there's no question, there's no, there's no itch of curiosity, there's no interest that is far away from us. And what that means is, we can endlessly be taking in information that interests us at the whim. And that can be good. You can then take that and reassemble it into something that you make. But I think there's a danger of being consumers instead of creators. And at the end of the day, even, even if you're a bookworm, are you going to look back on your life and say, I read thousands of books. I'm so glad of how I spent my life. When you could have written five books. I'm all about reading. Go at read. I'm not trying to tell you not to read. But I'm saying... I really think part of this thing of the kingdom is being creators. Taking something of our relationship and, 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 and being productive for Jesus. Amen. And don't you feel amazing when you've made something? Yeah. The other day I reupholstered like all the chairs in the house. Yeah. And, and, I, and it wasn't fun. It was annoying to figure out like, how the last person decided to glue the screws into the chairs. What are you doing with your life, sir? Ma'am, I don't know who you are. Previous owner of the chairs. Glued this... mm. My job would have been so much easier. But at the end of the day, when I I stood back and I said, I reupholstered all those chairs. I felt really good because I had made something with my own two hands. I don't know why I was George W. Bush right there. I am on a weird roll today. What you got to do is you got to lose yourself in the music the moment you own it. You got to never let it go. No, you only got one shot, okay? Do not, this is not in the notes either, miss this chance to blow this opportunity comes once in a lifetime. You got one life. We got one life. And, and I want us to live it while we're alive. I want us to live with hearts awake to Jesus. I want to live with this hope. 
I want to live intentionally, intentionally planted by the gates of hope and then creating, producing whatever it is that that relationship is birthing in my heart. That, you know, that, that Garth met with me the other week and, and gave me a terrifying question. Terrifying. Ter- Garth is terrifying with his diagnostic questions. You know what his diagnostic question? Tim, what's the one thing you hope I don't ask you today? Go away. I'm going to eat some sushi. Why don't you tell me a joke? That's a pun. Um, did I answer the question? I did try to turn it on him, and, and the results were fascinating. A wall. It was like all of a sudden there was a wall in the middle of the sushi. And I'm picking on you. This is illegal. This is bad pastoral. Okay. Jesus, can you help me? Why you make me ADHD, Lord? Okay. There's something, though, when we are engaged in making things for Jesus, doing, maybe you're doing is hospitality, maybe you're doing is, 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 is literature, maybe you're doing is praying for people, maybe you're doing is like cleaning someone's house for them. I don't know what your, what your gifts are, but whatever action the hope provokes, because, right, when we receive his love, hope comes online and we go, ah, and we want to do for him. That's not bad. That's good. Go with that. So whatever that thing is that's born out of hope, that says take action, be a creator of something good in the midst of a dark world that builds hope in others, whatever that is, when you're engaged in that, I think you'll notice that during the activity you become self-forgetful. Oh, what a blessing that is. What a joy that is to be self-forgetful, so engrossed in the work, the good work that God created us for in Christ Jesus, that you become self-forgetful. I think you'll also know, notice, if you really pay attention, the, the Spirit of God resting on you as He's flowing through you in a deeper way when you sit alone and pray for His Spirit to rest on you. Nothing wrong with that. I love that. I do that. Anyway. Um, I was thinking about, Brian and Hibbs and I were talking about guarding our gates of our mind. And I said, you know, I feel like we're not, that, that take every thought captive. I feel like passages like that feel almost stressful to me. We've got to take our minds captive. We've got to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Huh. And I'm like, ah, uh, I want to do that, but I don't like what the pictures are that are forming in my brain. It feels like, Whack-a-mole. You remember, you know the game Whack-a-mole? You go down to the fun land at the at Rehoboth Beach and you put in your token, because you, they don't want to take quarters. You put in your token and then you're like this. And then they pop up, Whack-ha! But the whole point of the game is you're, you're on high alert for what's wrong. You're on defense. You're on high alert reacting. And I feel like, can y'all shut that door? The purpose of that... Separation is that the noisy reverberating echo chamber is separate from us with our acoustic pads called... Okay. And I feel like that, that, that mindset of renewing our mind or guarding the gates of our mind is so, it's so reactionary. It's like, what's the devil up to lately? What's lust doing? What's worry doing? What's greed up to in my life? And like, the more you focus on something, the more it grows, right? So it's like, 
You can get really good at identifying stuff that's wrong. And just the, whole, the end result is you're stressed out and feeling defeated and exhausted. Whereas the way we renew our mind is not to focus on looking for wrong thoughts and beliefs and things that are, oh my goodness. The way we do that is by being captivated by Jesus. We become aware of him. We become aware of his goodness. And that awareness of him, the awareness of him, who is the one who said, is Brian, picture Jesus next to you all day, whatever you're doing. I thought that might be one of those little keys to renewing your mind. Because when you see his goodness in the midst of everything, what happens to that stress response? It diminishes it. I wouldn't claim it goes completely away. It diminishes it. And I begin to have a, a, a vision of him bigger. And the light starts to rise in my heart a little bit more. A hopeful vision. Not of how awesome I am for crying out loud. That's never been the gospel. But that he's with me. He's for me. He's in me. That Christ in you is more than enough for the present moment. Whatever is going on in the present moment. And that instead of whack-a-mole, is how the mind is renewed. I'm over time, so all this to say we're in a real fight. And it's not an accident that he's given us what we need to fight the battle you're in. But not... To fight the battle we're in, we have to first switch from, I can't believe this is happening. Poor me. This is so stupid. This is so wrong. Um, If I shared my personal examples, you'd be like, that's all it takes to trip you up? Um, Like, it's 2.30 a.m., and the kitten is crying loudly from the other room, and I'm like, all the children up, and I finally get them to sleep, and now there's a dumb cat? I want to sleep, Lord Jesus. Um, but that's small potatoes, honestly. That's not that big. Um, me and my useless nipples, whoever said that. Um, see, if you talk out of turn, then I'll talk out of turn, and then it's all out of turn. Uh, that's hilarious, thank you. But gratitude is really what I was trying to get to. Gra- Jesus, deliver me. The first shift that needs to happen is the shift from self-pity to gratitude. Self-pity is focused on me and what I don't have and what I shouldn't, what I, you know, this isn't right, I'm so, this, Really, this is unreasonable for the universe to expect this on top of everything else of me right now. How could the universe be so, so jacked up that this is expected of me? And when we break into gratitude, we're not saying thank you for the broken situation. We're saying your goodness is more, is my, my heart is tuned more to your goodness than this. And I'm not saying that gratitude then immediately solves the problem. But gratitude turns our heart in such a way that now we're prepared to turn the war. 
I have a bunch more passages. I'll, I'll just sort of quickly finish up. Hope stored up in heaven for you. Paul starts Colossians by saying that you've got faith in Jesus and love for all the saints. And these come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. And there's a couple ways you could view that. You could view that as like one day we'll die and go to heaven. It'll be a lot better later. Or you could realize that hope stored up in heaven means that we have a hope that is secure, unstealable, unkillable. It won't fade. Moth and rust cannot affect it. And is an infinite storehouse of genuine, well-founded, reasonable hope that we can make withdrawals from every moment we need while we're in this life. Isaiah 40, 31, Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So maybe right now you can't run, but you can get up. Maybe right now you can't. Run, but you can start walking. Maybe right now you can't fly, but you can start running. Maybe somebody in here can start flying. You just need permission. But no matter where you are, there's hope. And if we have hope, even the smallest hope, it can plant in us like a seed and birth the eyes of our heart, having a vision of something worth living for, walking toward. A.W. Tozer said, The devil hates a spirit-filled minister with an intensity second only to that which he feels for Christ. The source of this hatred is not difficult to discover. An effective Christ-like minister is a constant embarrassment to the devil, a threat to his dominion, a rebuttal of his best arguments, and a dogged reminder of his coming overthrow. No wonder he hates him. Satan knows the downfall of a prophet of God is a strategic victory to him, so he rests not, day or night, devising hidden snares and deadfalls for the ministry. Perhaps a better figure than deadfalls and snares is that of a poisonous dart that does not kill the victim, it only paralyzes them. For I think Satan has little interest in killing the preacher outright. An ineffective, half-alive minister is a better advertisement for hell than a good man dead. Apply that to yourself. Satan's goal is not kill you and give you a great funeral that inspires many as a martyr and a sign of how much your hope is rooted in heaven and all that you endure joyfully. Now his goal is to wear you out and wear you down, have you living half alive and ineffective. Because Jesus' purpose, Jesus' purpose is abundant life for you, abundant life for you, overflowing with hope, Grounded, rooted in love. Final quote. Victoria Stafford. Go ahead and stand. This will be our prelude to the benediction. Victoria Stafford says this, I have a friend who traffics in words. She's not a minister, but a psychiatrist in the health clinic at a prestigious women's college. We were sitting once, not long after a student that she had known and counseled committed suicide in the dormitory there. My friend, the doctor, the healer, held this loss very closely in those first few days, not unprofessionally, but deeply and fully, as you or I would have, had this been someone in our care. At one point, with tears streaming down her face, she looked up in defiance. This is the only word for it. 
And she spoke explicitly of her vocation, as though she were renewing a vow or making a new covenant. And I think she was. She said, you know, I cannot save them. I'm not here to save anybody or save the world. All I can do, what I am called to do, is to plant myself by the gates of hope. Sometimes they come in, and and sometimes they walk by, but I stand there every day and I call out until my lungs are sore with the calling, and I beckon and urge them in toward beautiful life and love. May we be planted in this Advent season as we await the appearing of Jesus, the child who is our hope. May we be planted by the gates of hope. I'm going to give a benediction and then I want to also give an invitation. Anyone who wants prayer to be more thoroughly planted by the gates of hope, what did you do, Garth? Gates of Hope uh, can come forward. And uh, also, if you are sick and need and want prayer for healing, please, please come and get that before you leave. Ready? Holy Spirit, plant us as your people by the gates of hope, rooted and grounded in love, overflowing, living fully awake in the midst of these shadowlands. We yearn for you, Jesus. We long for you, Jesus. You are everything, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for your patience. It was 15 minutes over, unless that clock's wrong. Love you guys.